Chapter Twenty One, Part Two of A Diary from Dixie. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Laurie Ann Walden. A Diary from Dixie by Mary Chestnut. Chapter Twenty One, Camden, South Carolina, Part Two. May Twenty First. They say Governor McGrath has absconded, and that the Yankees have said, "If you have no visible governor, we will send you one." If we had one and they found him, they would clap him in prison instanter. The Negroes have flocked to the Yankee squad, which has recently come, but they were snubbed, the rampant freedmen. Stay where you are, say the Yanks. We have nothing for you. And they sadly peruse their way. Now that they have picked up that word peruse, they use it in season and out. When we met Mrs. Preston's William, we asked, Where are you going? Perusing my way to Columbia, he answered. When the Yanks said they had no rations for idle Negroes, John Walker answered mildly, This is not at all what we expected. The colored women, dressed in their gaudiest array, carried bouquets to the Yankees, making the day a jubilee. But in this house there is not the slightest change. Every Negro has known for months that he or she was free, but I do not see one particle of change in their manner. They are, perhaps, more circumspect, polite, and quiet, but that is all. Otherwise, all goes on in antebellum statu quo. Every day I expect to miss some familiar face, but so far have been disappointed. Mrs. U. G. we found at the hotel here, and we brought her to Bloomsbury. She told us that Jeff Davis was traveling leisurely with his wife twelve miles a day, utterly careless whether he were taken prisoner or not, and that General Hampton had been paroled. Fighting Dick Anderson and Stephen Elliott, of Fort Sumter memory, are quite ready to pray for Andy Johnson and to submit to the powers that be. Not so our belligerent clergy. Pray for people when I wish they were dead? cries Reverend Mr. Trapier. No, never. I will pray for President Davis till I die. I will do it to my last gasp. My chief is a prisoner, but I am proud of him still. He is a spectacle to gods and men. He will bear himself as a soldier, a patriot, a statesman, a Christian gentleman. He is the martyr of our cause. And I replied with my tears. Look here. Taken in woman's clothes? asked Mr. Trapier. Rubbish, stuff, and nonsense. If Jeff Davis has not the pluck of a true man, then there is no courage left on this earth. If he does not die game, I give it up. Something, you see, was due to Lincoln and the Scotch cap that he hid his ugly face with in that express car when he rushed through Baltimore in the night. It is that escapade of their man Lincoln that set them on making up the woman's clothes story about Jeff Davis. Mrs. W. drove up. She, too, is off for New York to sell four hundred bales of cotton and a square, or something, which pays tremendously in the Central Park region, and to capture and bring home her Belle Feel, who remained north during the war. She knocked at my door. The day was barely dawning. I was in bed, and as I sprang up, discovered that my old Confederate nightgown had to be managed. It was so full of rents. I am afraid I gave undue attention to the sad condition of my gown, but could nowhere see a shawl to drape my figure. She was very kind. In case my husband was arrested and needed funds, she offered me some British securities and bonds. We were very grateful, but we did not accept the loan of money, which would have been almost the same as a gift, so slim was our chance of repaying it. But it was a generous thought on her part. I own that. Went to our plantation, the Hermitage, yesterday. Saw no change. Not a soul was absent from his or her post. I said, 
good-colored folks, when are you going to kick off the traces and be free? In their furious, emotional way, they swore devotion to us all to their dying day. Just the same, the minute they see an opening to better themselves, they will move on. William, my husband's foster brother, came up. Well, William, what do you want? asked my husband. Only to look at you, master. It does me good. June 1st. The New York Herald quotes General Sherman as saying, Columbia was burned by Hampton's sheer stupidity. But then, who burned everything on the way in Sherman's march to Columbia, and in the line of march Sherman took after leaving Columbia? We came, for three days of travel, over a road that had been laid bare by Sherman's torches. Nothing but smoking ruins was left in Sherman's track. That I saw with my own eyes. No living thing was left, no house for man or beast. They who burned the countryside for a belt of forty miles, did they not also burn the town? To charge that to Hampton's stupidity is merely an afterthought. This herald announces that Jeff Davis will be hanged at once, not so much for treason as for his assassination of Lincoln. Stanton, the herald says, has all the papers in his hands to convict him. The Yankees here say, The black man must go as the red man has gone. This is a white man's country. The Negroes want to run with the hare, but hunt with the hounds. They are charming in their professions to us, but declare that they are to be paid by these blessed Yankees in lands and mules for having been slaves. They were so faithful to us during the war, why should the Yankees reward them? To which the only reply is that it would be by way of punishing rebels. Mrs. Adger saw a Yankee soldier strike a woman, and she prayed God to take him in hand according to his deed. The soldier laughed in her face, swaggered off, stumbled down the steps, and then his revolver went off by the concussion and shot him dead. Footnote. Elizabeth K. Adger, wife of the Reverend John B. Adger, D.D., of Charleston, a distinguished Presbyterian divine, at one time a missionary to Smyrna, where he translated the Bible into the Armenian tongue. He was afterward, and before the war, a professor in the theological seminary at Columbia. His wife was a woman of unusual judgment and intelligence, sharing her husband's many hardships and notable experiences in the East. End footnote. The black ball is in motion. Mrs. Desisseur's cook shook the dust off her feet and departed from her kitchen today. Free, she said. The washerwoman is packing to go. Scipio Africanus, the colonel's body-servant, is a soldierly-looking black creature, fit to have delighted the eyes of old Frederick William of Prussia, who liked giants. We asked him how the Yankees came to leave him. Oh, I told them Master couldn't do without me know-how, and then I carried them some nice hams that they never could have found, they were hid so good. Eben dressed himself in his best, and went at a run to meet his Yankee deliverers, so he said. At the gate he met a squad coming in. He had adorned himself with his watch and chain, like the cordage of a ship, with a handful of gaudy seals. He knew the Yankees came to rob white people, but he thought they came to save niggers. "'Hand over that watch,' they said. Minus his fine watch and chain, Eben returned a sadder and a wiser man. He was soon in his shirt-sleeves, whistling at his knife-board. "'Why, you here? Why did you come back so soon?' he was asked. "'Well, I thought maybe I'd better stay with old master that give me the watch, and not go with them that stole it.' The watch was the pride of his life. The iron had entered his soul. Went up to my old house, Kamshatka, 
The Trapiers live there now. In those drawing-rooms where the children played Puss in Boots, where we have so often danced and sung, but never prayed before, Mr. Trapier held his prayer-meeting. I do not think I ever did as much weeping or as bitter in the same space of time. I let myself go. It did me good. I cried with a will. He prayed that we might have strength to stand up and bear our bitter disappointment, to look on our ruined homes and our desolated country and be strong. And he prayed for the man we elected to be our ruler and guide. We knew that they had put him in a dungeon and in chains. Men watch him day and night. Footnote. Mr. Davis, while encamped near Irwinsville, Georgia, had been captured on May 10th by a body of Federal cavalry under Lieutenant Colonel Pritchard. He was taken to Fortress Monroe and confined there for two years, his release being effected on May 13, 1867, when he was admitted to bail in the sum of $100,000, the first name on his bail bond being that of Horace Greeley. End footnote. By orders of Andy, the bloody-minded tailor, nobody above the rank of colonel can take the benefit of the amnesty oath, nobody who owns over $20,000, or who has assisted the Confederates. And now, ye rich men, howl, for your misery has come upon you. You are beyond the outlaw, camping outside. Howell Cobb and R.M.T. Hunter have been arrested. Our turn will come next, maybe. A Damocles sword hanging over a house does not conduce to a pleasant life. June 12th. Andy, made lord of all by the madman, Booth, says, Destruction only to the wealthy classes. Better teach the Negroes to stand alone before you break up all they leaned on, O oh Yankees. After all, the number who possess over $20,000 are very few. Andy has shattered some fond hopes. He denounces northern men who came south to espouse our cause. They may not take the life-giving oath. My husband will remain quietly at home. He has done nothing that he had not a right to do, nor anything that he is ashamed of. He will not fly from his country, nor hide anywhere in it. These are his words. He has a huge volume of Macaulay, which seems to absorb him. Slyly I slipped Silvio Pellico in his way. He looked at the title and moved it aside. Oh, said I, I only wanted you to refresh your memory as to a prisoner's life, and what a despotism can do to make its captives happy. Two Weddings in Camden, Ellen Douglas Ancrum to Mr. Lee, engineer and architect, a clever man, which is the best investment now. In Columbia, Sally Hampton and John Chevis Haskell, the bridegroom, a brave one-armed soldier. A wedding to be, Lou McCords, and Mrs. McCord is going about frantically looking for eggs to mix and make into wedding cake, and finding none. She now drives the funniest little one-mule vehicle. I have been ill since I last wrote in this journal. Serena's letter came. She says they have been visited by bushwhackers, the roughs that always follow in the wake of an army. My sister Kate they forced back against the wall. She had Katie, the baby, in her arms, and Miller, the brave boy, clung to his mother, though he could do no more. They tried to pour brandy down her throat. They knocked Mary down with the butt-end of a pistol, and Serena they struck with an open hand, leaving the mark on her cheek for weeks. Mr. Christopher Hampton says in New York people have been simply intoxicated with the fumes of their own glory. Military prowess is a new wrinkle of delight to them. They are mad with pride that, ten to one, they could, after five years' hard fighting, prevail over us, 
handicapped, as we were, with a majority of aliens, quasi-foes, and negro slaves whom they tried to seduce, shut up with us. They pay us the kind of respectful fear the British meted out to Napoleon when they sent him off with Sir Hudson Lowe to St. Helena, the lone rock by the sea, to eat his heart out where he could not alarm them more. Of course, the Yankees know and say they were too many for us, and yet they would all the same prefer not to try us again. Would Wellington be willing to take the chances of Waterloo once more, with Grouchy, Blucher, and all that left to haphazard? Wigfall said to old Cameron in 1861, Then you will a sutler be, and profit shall accrue. Footnote. Simon Cameron became Secretary of War in Lincoln's administration on March 4, 1861. On January 11, 1862, he resigned and was made minister to Russia. End footnote. Christopher Hampton says that in some inscrutable way, in the world north, everybody has contrived to amass fabulous wealth by this war. There are two classes of vociferous sufferers in this community. One, those who say, If people would only pay me what they owe me. Two, those who say, If people would only let me alone, I cannot pay them. I could stand it if I had anything with which to pay debts. Now we belong to both classes. Heavens, the sums people owe us, and will not, or cannot, pay, would settle all our debts ten times over and leave us in easy circumstances for life. But they will not pay. How can they? We are shut in here, turned with our faces to a dead wall. No mails. A letter is sometimes brought by a man on horseback, traveling through the wilderness made by Sherman. All railroads have been destroyed, and the bridges are gone. We are cut off from the world, here to eat out our hearts. Yet from my window I look out on many a gallant youth and maiden fair. The street is crowded, and it is a gay sight. Camden is thronged with refugees from the low country, and here they disport themselves. They call the walk in front of Bloomsbury the Boulevard. H. Lang tells us that poor Sandhill Millie Trimlin is dead, and that as a witch she had been denied Christian burial. Three times she was buried in consecrated ground in different churchyards, and three times she was dug up by a superstitious horde who put her out of their holy ground. Where her poor, old, ill-used bones are lying now, I do not know. I hope her soul is faring better than her body. She was a good, kind creature. Why supposed to be a witch? That H. Lang could not elucidate. Everybody in our walk of life gave Millie a helping hand. She was a perfect specimen of the Sandhill tacky race, sometimes called country crackers. Her skin was yellow and leathery, even the whites of her eyes were bilious in color. She was stumpy, strong, and lean, hard-featured, horny-fisted. Never were people so aided in every way as these Sandhillers. Why do they remain Sandhillers from generation to generation? Why should Millie never have bettered her condition? My grandmother lent a helping hand to her grandmother. My mother did her best for her mother, and I am sure the so-called witch could never complain of me. As long as I can remember, gangs of these Sandhill women traipsed in with baskets to be filled by charity, ready to carry away anything they could get. All are made on the same pattern, more or less alike. They were treated as friends and neighbors, not as beggars. They were asked in to take seats by the fire, and there they sat for hours, stony-eyed, silent, wearing out human endurance and politeness. But their husbands and sons, whom we never saw, were citizens and voters. 
When patience was at its last ebb, they would open their mouths and loudly demand whatever they had come to seek. One called Judy Bradley, a one-eyed virago, who played the fiddle at all the sandhill dances and fandangos, made a deep impression on my youthful mind. Her list of requests was always rather long, and once my grandmother grew restive and actually hesitated. "'Woman, do you mean to let me starve?' she cried furiously. My grandmother then attempted a meek lecture as to the duty of earning one's bread. Judy squared her arms akimbo and answered, "'And pray, who made you a judge of the world? Lord, Lord, if I had a note I had to stand all this jaw, I wouldn't a took your old things.' But she did take them, and came afterward again and again. June 27th. An awful story from Sumter. An old gentleman, who thought his son dead or in a Yankee prison, heard someone try the front door. It was about midnight, and these are squally times. He called out, "'What is that?' There came no answer. After a while he heard someone trying to open a window, and he fired. The house was shaken by a fall. Then, after a long time of dead silence, he went round the house to see if his shot had done any harm, and found his only son bathed in his own blood on his father's doorstep. The son was just back from a Yankee prison, one of his companions said, and had been made deaf by cold and exposure. He did not hear his father hail him. He had tried to get into the house in the same old way he used to employ when a boy. My sister-in-law, in tears of rage and despair, her servants all gone to a big meeting at Mulberry, though she had made every appeal against their going. "'Send them adrift,' someone said. They do not obey you or serve you, they only live on you. It would break her heart to part with one of them. But that sort of thing will soon right itself. They will go off to better themselves. We have only to cease paying wages. And that is easy, for we have no money. July 4th. Saturday I was in bed with one of my worst headaches. Occasionally there would come a sob, and I thought of my sister insulted, and my little sweet Williams. Another of my beautiful Columbia Quartet had rough experiences. A raider asked the plucky little girl, Lizzie Hamilton, for a ring which she wore. "'You shall not have it,' she said. The man put a pistol to her head, saying, "'Take it off. Hand it to me, or I will blow your brains out.' "'Blow away,' said she. The man laughed and put down his pistol, remarking, "'You knew I would not hurt you.' Of course, I knew you dared not shoot me. Even Sherman would not stand that. There was talk of the Negroes where the Yankees had been, Negroes who flocked to them and showed them where silver and valuables had been hid by the white people. Ladies' maids dressed themselves in their mistresses' gowns before the owners' faces and walked off. Now before this, everyone had told me how kind, faithful, and considerate the Negroes had proven— I am sure, after hearing these tales, the fidelity of my own servants shines out brilliantly. I had taken their conduct too much as a matter of course. In the afternoon I had some business on our place, the Hermitage. John drove me down. Our people were all at home, quiet, orderly, respectful, and at their usual work. In point of fact, things looked unchanged. There was nothing to show that any one of them had even seen the Yankees, or knew that there was one in existence. July 26th. I do not write often now, not for want of something to say, but from a loathing of all I see and hear, and why dwell upon these things? Colonel Chestnut, poor old man, is worse, grows more restless. He seems to be wild with homesickness. 
He wants to be at Mulberry. When there, he cannot see the mighty giants of the forest, the huge old wide-spreading oaks. But he says he feels that he is there, so soon as he hears the carriage rattling across the bridge at the Beaver Dam. I am reading French with Johnny, anything to keep him quiet. We gave a dinner to his company, the small remnant of them, at Mulberry House. About twenty idle negroes, trained servants, came without leave or license and assisted. So there was no expense. They gave their time and labor for a good day's feeding. I think they love to be at the old place. Then I went up to nurse Kate Withers. That lovely girl, barely eighteen, died of typhoid fever. Tanny wanted his sweet little sister to have a dress for Mary Boykin's wedding, where she was to be one of the bridesmaids. So Tanny took his horses, rode one, and led the other thirty miles in the broiling sun to Columbia, where he sold the lead horse and came back with a roll of Swiss muslin. As he entered the door, he saw Kate lying there dying. She died praying that she might die. She was weary of earth and wanted to be at peace. I saw her die and saw her put in her coffin. No words of mine can tell how unhappy I am. Six young soldiers, her friends, were her pallbearers. As they marched out with that burden, sad were their faces. Princess Bright Eyes writes, Our soldier boys returned, want us to continue our weekly dances. Another maiden fair indicts, Here we have a Yankee garrison. We are told the officers find this the dullest place they were ever in. They want the ladies to get up some amusement for them. They also want to get into society. From Isabella in Columbia. General Hampton is home again. He looks crushed. How can he be otherwise? His beautiful home is in ruins, and ever-present with him must be the memory of the death tragedy which closed forever the eyes of his glorious boy, Preston. Now, there strikes up a serenade to General Ames, the Yankee commander, by a military band, of course. Your last letters have been of the meagerest. What is the matter? August 2nd. Dr. Boykin and John Witherspoon were talking of a nation in mourning, of blood poured out like rain on the battlefields. For what? Never let me hear that the blood of the brave has been shed in vain. No, it sends a cry down through all time. End of chapter 21. End of A Diary from Dixie by Mary Chestnut.